What's up, everyone? This is episode number 23 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and a lot of you have been shooting me messages about my national recap um, on my Instagram this week, which is at Wax Museum Podcast. I've uploaded a few pictures from my trip there as well. Feel free to check those out if you haven't done so already. Uh, I've also received similar messages on my Twitter this week, which is at Wax Museum PC. So I want to thank you for those, and I'm really glad that you enjoyed the episode. I, I hope you know I enjoyed my time there, and I hope that was very clear and that came out um, kind of naturally. Um, so I'm sure that you've already seen the title for this episode, which is going to be a little bit different. And um, in just a little bit, then, I'm going to talk about that card that kind of made a surprise reemergence at the end of 2018. But before I do, I've got a little Zion news to pass along. Um, And you guys that have been with me for a while, you might remember the two-parter that Adam and I did on the potential Zion effect in the hobby. Well, we got some major news on Thursday, so that will at least help to move this story along. Zion has signed an exclusive autograph deal with Panini. So those of you that want autos of him in a Pelicans uniform or a Duke uniform, you can breathe a sigh of relief. Um, Now you'll remember before this, we didn't quite know what to expect. When Adam and I talked about this months ago, the main scenarios were that Zion was either going to sign an Upper Deck exclusive, maybe similar to Ben Simmons, or that he would sign with Panini and the hobby would move along as expected. Um, If Upper Deck got an exclusive, it it really would have, in my opinion, put a major damper on the hobby year as a whole. We experienced it to some degree with Ben Simmons, but we haven't seen a newly drafted player that was um, this hyped since LeBron James, because Simmons was not quite nearly this hyped. Um, So Simmons, if you remember, when, when that all went down, his announcement with Panini, or his announcement with Upper Deck was announced in late June. And when we passed this point for Zion and nothing was announced, a lot of us collectors thought that maybe they were saving something for the National. Well, then nothing happened there either, which if there's going to be a time to do it, that would have been the time to make an announcement. Um, To make things interesting, though, there were the silver and gold National packs that had Zion cards in them, not with autographs, but at least with pieces of a player-worn Duke jersey. So we knew that there had been some type of an agreement at some point. We just didn't know the logistics of it, and there were no autographs then. So um, at the same time that we were kind of processing all of this information, there was some conversation that we might not get anything for a while, even beyond the national. And um, that would probably be the only scenario that's worse than either Panini or Upper Deck signing an exclusive, which would be no one getting him. And the reason for this speculation over the last month and a half is that there was a major marketing fight over the number one pick. And as reported by the Associated Press, Zion signed with Prime Sports Agency in April um, before hiring a, a player agent. And per the terms of this deal... Prime Sports was slated to receive 15% of Zion's marketing deals. Well, then the CAA, which is the Creative Artist Agency, um, it says they induced Williamson to back out by basically telling his family that their company could do a better job. 
but that switch came all the way back in May, so that stuff should have been sorted out. Well, about a week before the draft, um, it looks like the initial company, Prime, they were still um, not happy with this, so Zion sued to terminate his contract with Prime Sports, saying that the agency violated the state sports agent laws. Um, Now, once again, I'm reading some pieces from the Associated Press here, so I want to credit them. Um, In an article, they summed up the lawsuit by saying, according to the lawsuit, the five-year contract he signed five days later with Prime Sports did not contain notice that he would lose his college eligibility upon signing and did not contain a disclaimer allowing him 14 days to cancel. Both are required under the North Carolina Uniform Athlete Agents Act. Um, As I've said on this show before, I am not a legal expert. Uh, I do think they were probably well aware that he would lose his college eligibility, and I think we all knew he wasn't going back to Duke anyway, so there looks like they're exploiting a technicality to get what they want, but with that being said, I don't blame them. Um, You know, this information should have been in the contract to begin with. So... Predictably, uh, Prime Sports was not happy with all of this maneuvering, and its president called the quote-unquote collective actions of CAA and Zion Williamson willful, intentional, and unlawful. So, um, to sum it all up, up to this point, Zion signed with somebody, decided they weren't representing him well. He then signed with a second company, and is suing the original company in an effort to declare the original contract void. That was around June 13th. Um, So keep in mind, that's pre-draft. Less than a week later, Prime Sports, they struck back and they filed a lawsuit, I believe this was right before the draft, that accused Zion of a breach of contract. Um, It gets tricky because none of the articles that I saw discussing these lawsuits made any mention of cards, So that left those of us in the hobby and on the message boards, we were left to speculate what would happen. And probably the most reasonable theory I read online was that um, this was going to stall his autograph deal, wherever that might be, or whoever that might be with, because he wouldn't be able to negotiate any new marketing deals. It It would likely require him to pay double commission, um, or the new agency wouldn't receive any sort of compensation. So it, it wouldn't make... If you're advising him, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for him to sign anything yet. Um, I want to emphasize that this hasn't been confirmed anywhere, but out of all the options, that sounds the most likely to me. Well, several days after reading that, which was then Thursday, which was August 8th, Panini, like I said, they announced that they had signed Zion to an exclusive deal. So I don't know if that had already been negotiated or if it was just signed, or if it will be affected by these lawsuits at all. But Panini waited until Thursday to announce it. Um, I figured if they had it by the National, they would have announced it then. And they released pictures of him signing the draft night cards on draft night, which we hadn't seen those before. So it makes me think that you know there was some sort of agreement in place to get that done and then if everything worked out then it would be released which is is what we're seeing now uh, but as per this announcement this week um, you know you heard, hopefully if you haven't heard the news Zion's first official licensed autograph card will be in 2019 contenders draft picks which uh, releases in early September that set is going to be huge so get ready for all of the chaos that surrounds that 
Um, his first NBA autographs will release in October with 2019 hoops. Um, followed by then we've got Panini's 25 additional products that will release during the season. Um, so there are some news releases out there, pictures of, of mock-ups of cards that he signed, but then there are, there are also some pictures of him actually signing some cards. So we do get to see what some of these cards have looked like. Okay, so if you haven't been able to read up on Hobby News, that's your weekly Zion Watch. Uh, I don't intend to talk about him every episode all year long, but I will say I think this is good for the hobby, but also buckle up because this is going to be a wild year. Um, I mentioned in another episode that I came back to the hobby in 2003 and I watched all of that unfold with LeBron James. I'm sure there will be plenty of people who do the same for Zion. You know, that they come to basketball, they start collecting basketball. I've already seen baseball people asking for advice. Uh, the hobby has changed quite a bit since 2003, so who knows how everything will shake up in the long run. As a content creator, I'm licking my chops. Okay. So on to our main topic for the day, though. Um, I want to talk about a card that I saw quite a bit at the National and one that I've seen quite a bit at card shows over the last year. Um, As you can see in the title of the episode, this is the so-called Menendez Brothers card. Um, Just to give a little bit of context, about eight or nine months ago, which would be December of of 2018, a 1990-91 hoops base card of Mark Jackson, which was a five-cent card, Uh, It took the internet and the collecting world by storm when people realized that the background of the card featured the Menendez brothers, who came to notoriety after murdering their parents. So I want to, um, you know, this is a great time to talk about that card, to talk about that set. I want to look at the logistics of the 1990 set. I want to answer the question, who are the Menendez brothers? I want to talk about, you know, how this card was in hiding all of these years. And then I want to look at some of the the sales information real quick. Okay, so let's start with the set itself, which was 1990-91 hoops. And um, this was really part of the junk wax era where cards were just being mass produced. Um, Those cards typically aren't worth anything now. Um, You can find unopened packs of them at card shows probably everywhere. Um, The set itself doesn't have a lot of actual hits. As far as your rookie goes, there are some good rookies in this class, but there's just so much of this set that was produced that they're all worthless. You've got uh, Gary Payton is in the set as a rookie. Tim Hardaway has a rookie. Sean Kemp has a rookie. Um, you know, I know I looked back at some of the past sales. I think PWCC, um, and this was even before all the stuff went down. But they sold a, a PSA 10 Sean Kemp for five dollars plus shipping. So you know, it's really a worthless set. As far as the um, hits of the set go, there's the, the famous Sam Vincent card. Uh, Sam Vincent was a, a player on the Magic, so that you know that in itself doesn't seem like a very big deal, but um, Jordan is a, Michael Jordan is a defender in the card, and he's wearing number 12. Um, a lot of you probably know about 45. You might not know about number 12, so... The, the real quick story about that is that his number 23 jersey is believed to have been stolen on the day of the game. Um, they, the Bulls did not bring a backup number 23 jersey with them, which seems kind of crazy now. Um, but the team did have a just-in-case number 12 that had no name on the back. 
and um, Sam Smith, who covered the game for the Chicago Tribune, and he now writes for Bulls.com, he remembered a, a search in the crowd. They actually looked in the crowd to see if they could find someone that was similar to Jordan's size, which was 6'6", that had a Jordan jersey on, a red Jordan jersey, that would fit his frame. Um, no luck for that. Okay, uh, And now that card in itself, even though it's, it's kind of an interesting conversation piece, um, there's really no value in recent history. I, I know there was the, the whole graded Jordan base card craze, um, but beyond that, there's really been no value for that card. Um, so the set as a whole hasn't had any value either. There's no reason to rip the boxes. There's no reason to rip the packs. Well, all of that changed for a short time when a Mark Jackson card became the Menendez Brothers card in December of 2018. Okay, Now, who are the Menendez brothers? And I've seen people, you know, they know the card's important, but they don't really know about the brothers, or they've said their name wrong, or they've spelled it wrong. Uh, let's look at the Menendez brothers. Let's go back to 1989. Okay, so the location is Beverly Hills. You've got a family of four, um, a high-profile entertainment mogul, an entertainment executive named Jose. Um, you've got his wife, Kitty. And then you've got their two sons, Lyle and Eric. And the elder of these two, Lyle, he had gone off to Princeton, um, although he'd been placed on academic probation. The younger of the two, Eric, had just graduated high school, and he was a phenomenal tennis player. Okay? So um, on the outside, you know, people thought that they had a pretty functional family. Um, you know, they were pretty wealthy uh, things looked okay from the outside, except for, you know, those who knew them closely. Well, everything changed. Uh, perceptions completely changed on August 20th of 1989. And that was the night there was a series of shotgun blasts at the Menendez house. Um, once the investigations took place and they found the bodies, they saw that the father, Jose, had been shot in the back of the head, um, you know, multiple other places as well. The mother in the arm, the chest, the face, um, both of them shot in the kneecaps. The idea was that it was supposed to um, maybe look like a mafia hit. The two sons, though, were unharmed, physically at least, because they were the ones holding the guns. And for a while, after all of this went down, um, no police showed up. So you've got to imagine that after doing this, the sons are in a little bit of shock. So they went out for a drive. And they decided, well, now we've got to try and create an alibi. Um, one way that they could do this, um, or at least their plan was, you know, if we can show up to the theater and they'll still give us a ticket for the, you know, the 10 o'clock showing of whatever movie is on, we might be able to say we were there and we would have the alibis, we would have the receipts that have that time stamped on it. Um, so anyway, they went out and they tried to create an alibi. Um Eventually, they came back to the house and still nobody had showed up. So the, the, their parents' bodies are still there. Um, unbeknownst to Eric, Lyle picks up the phone and calls police. And he is hysterical. And he is letting them know that his parents have been murdered. Now, he doesn't say it was him. Um, they try and make it look like, you know, it was intruders. But the parents have been murdered. Um, and strangely enough, for the most part, Lyle and Eric avoided any real suspicion at the beginning of the investigation. Um, 
However, their spending afterward caused a little bit of concern. And, you know, everyone deals with grief differently. And it's not abnormal for for people to spend money when they're grieving. But the amount that they spent was um, unreal. The thinking is that they spent about $700,000. They bought cars. Lyle even bought a restaurant. They ended up courtside at several Knicks games. So they the spending was kind of out of control. And things get even messier from here. So they still hadn't really been convicted, arrested, or charged with anything. And Eric is going to see his psychologist. And I don't know if he intended to do this or not. I don't think he did, if I remember correctly. But Eric confessed the murders to his psychologist. Um, the psychologist is sitting on this information, and it's a you know a pretty big deal. But there is a uh, you know there's supposed to be some confidentiality there. Well, um, in order to really get out of that, he basically says that the brothers threatened him. So he says that you know he felt he was in danger of being physically harmed, so he had to say something. Um, It takes another weird twist when the psychologist then tells his mistress, who was another patient of his, or a former patient, and then she told the police. So that got really messy there. Uh, And there's more to that story, but that's just the basics of it. Um, So Lyle was arrested on March the 8th. Um, In the meantime, Eric was overseas. I think he was in Israel um, playing tennis. And he came back. He turned himself in on the 11th. So this was in uh, March. Well, the proceedings were delayed for two years. Um, The two brothers were eventually charged in November of 1992. By the time of their trial, though, there was no question that the brothers had killed their parents. So the real question was why. And this case dragged on for years, though. The trial was broadcast on cable TV, and it essentially launched court TV. You've got to remember that this was pre-OJ. Um, it seemed like a pretty obvious outcome at first, until defense attorneys then built the case around a series of shocking revelations that the brothers had been sexually and psychologically abused for years by their father, um, and that the murders were self-defense. So, um, it's actually pretty interesting reading and watching stuff about that trial. The first trial ended in 1994, and over time, the um, defense was was really able to build this case and to build sympathy for this boys with the jury. And when the first trial ended in 1994, the juries, because they were tried separately, um, the juries were split down the middle. So this prompted a a 1995 retrial. This time there were no cameras. Um, The logistics of the case changed quite a bit because the judge determined that a lot of the um, testimony from friends and relatives could no longer be used or could no longer be considered. So uh, really they didn't have a, the brothers didn't have much of a chance in the second trial They were found guilty of first-degree murder in March of 1996, and they were sentenced to life in prison. Um, They spent over 20 years apart, and they were recently reunited at the R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility in California. Now, that's a real quick overview of the case itself. 
There are a couple of really good documentaries out there that go into a lot more detail. Two that I would recommend, um, one of them is on ABC. It was called Truth and Lies, the Menendez Brothers. And um, that one gives a lot of the nuts and bolts of the case. There's another one, though, that's, uh, I think it's like five parts. We watched it on Netflix um, about a month ago. Um, It's from A&E. It's called Eric Tells All. And it's actually Eric from prison on the phone, and he's narrating the whole saga. So it's really interesting to hear the thing from his perspective. Um, But this is a basketball card podcast, so we've got to talk about the cardboard. That's really what we're here for. Um, So you've got to think about this card. It's from 1990. It's mass-produced. You Think of all the eyes that are on this card. Maybe even a million people, maybe more, have seen this card over the years. Um, as I've mentioned, I've watched a lot of Menendez Brothers stuff. I've read a lot of stuff about them. Um, if you showed me a picture of the Menendez Brothers, I would recognize them. Like I said, my wife and I watch this stuff all the time. But when you see people out of context, and maybe you've experienced this when you see you know, a co-worker out of context, or you see, you know, if you're used to seeing someone in one spot and then you see them elsewhere, it kind of throws you off. So maybe that's what happened here, but it's just strange that that happened with millions of people. Um, there was a, when there was some discussion of this on the blowout forums, there was one member um, named D. John. He says that he believed it was actually published in an issue of Beckett or, or Tough Stuff. Um, you know, in the 90s, but there wasn't a big demand on the card to push up the value. Um, you know, I looked and I didn't find it, but, but you know, it's, I, don't, I can't look through every single Beckett or Tough Stuff, so it very well could have been there. I, I believe that by all means. Um, so Slam Magazine, though, after all of this went down in 2018, they um, did a little investigating of their own, and they featured an article of the person who we think quote-unquote, discovered the card. And this person was named Stephen Zarantz, and Stephen writes crime novels. And he was looking for photographic proof that the brothers went on a spinning spree because he'd heard all of this before. He'd read about the spinning sprees. Um, One thing he read about was Nick's tickets. So he decided, you know, well, I'm going to start looking up photos of the Nick's from that time frame and see, you know, if, if I can find anything. Well, the only photo that he found that shows them, and the only one that I've seen, because I did a little digging myself, was this 1990 Hoops Mark Jackson card. And he actually posted a photo of that card, um, I think on his Twitter, on August 12th of 2018. Um, this was then posted a little bit later on on Reddit, which is kind of like a big message board on the internet on December 5th. Um, someone tweeted the thread on December 7th, and, and Darren Ravel replied to it on the 8th, and then you know things kind of blew up from there. Um, so the next big question, because if, if you look at the card, the pictures of these guys are kind of blurry. How do we even know that this is the Menendez brothers? And it, it really helps if you piece together a, a timeline of everything. Um, the murders themselves were on August the 20th of 1989. Um, they were both apprehended in early March of 1990. So um, if you look at the card itself, if you look, there are several clues. Um, number one, Mark Jackson's wearing a knee brace, which um, I watched a lot of Mark Jackson in my life. And, 
you know, he, that wasn't normal for him. It wasn't like a routine. So you could look and see, you know, his injury and he wore this brace between certain dates. So that helps us to narrow it down. All right. This could legitimately be them. Um, also, I haven't seen anyone else mention this, but you can see that there's a black memorial band on Mark Jackson's, Jackson's shoulder. Um, and that was for Madison Square Garden announcer John Condon, who had just died on October of 1989. So that really helps us to narrow down the possibility like, yes, this definitely could have been them. Um, and then later on, people did some more digging. And, and even though Lyle doesn't know exactly what game it was, he did an interview with the um, Daily Mail, which is a, a British daily newspaper uh, via telephone, and he confirmed that it was him. He said, you know, that was sort of a game that we got tickets for. We went several times during that time. Um, another interesting comment that he made, he said, that's, that's a snapshot of my brother and I together free one of the last times, um, and it would be shortly after that that we would not be free again. Okay. Um, one more quote from him uh, regarding their attendance. He says, we went quite a bit. We went to games where we could go. Um, I basically scalped tickets, and most of the games I went to were in New York. But my brother and I, after my parents' death, were here in L.A., so I'm not really sure which game it was. So he doesn't know the exact date, and you know I wouldn't expect him to have a, a date like that in his mind. It's just another game he went to. But it is... Um, you know, the evidence is mounting up that shows that, yes, it is these two brothers. They were there. They are featured in the card. Um, and it, it's just something that makes that card a little bit more interesting. Well, as with all things, when they gain interest, they typically gain value. And prior to that, this card was, you know, it was probably a five cent card. Yeah, I, you could dig through boxes at shows and find just dozens of copies of this thing. Um, and I see comments from this set at dime boxes at shows all the time. But this card is typically pulled out and either the dealer has got it in a, a different box or somebody's already purchased it. Um, but as for the rest of the set, it, it's hard to even give them away. And I've talked to guys who said they've literally thrown these sets away because they weren't worth the paper they were printed on. Uh, but let's look at the, the sales of the card now and the sales of the card you know, around when this whole... Um, you know, this news was broken. Um, I see sales all the way back in November 2018 that mentioned, that actually mentioned the brothers on the card in the title. So there was an auction on November 25th of 2018, 27 copies of this card that sold for $13.16. Um, so, you know, you're looking at in the, the 50 cent range there. So it's still not a super valuable card. Um, that number eclipsed $20, though, shortly after the Reddit thread. So stuff shot up really quick. And I even see one sale on December 8th for $56. Um, this whole thing went down so quick, it'd be interesting to see if that person actually kept the card or returned it. Um, you know, because I'm sure they could have bought it a week later for at least half of that, if not much less. Um, they stayed in the, in fact, they stayed in the $15 to $30 price range for a week or so, um, but only in that, that time frame. Um, Sports Collector Daily, there's an article about the card on there where they mentioned the, the power seller Burbank sports cards. Uh, I'm sure you guys have heard of them before. I know the House of Jordans podcast talked a little bit about them because they actually visited the shop because they're out in California. Um, so Burbank sports cards, 
They said that they knew about it a few months ago and they bought a a few hundred of them thinking it could be something special if the general public discovered it. Um, They also said then those cards along with the 100 cards we had in regular stock gave us a nice quantity. We started selling them at $7.99 months ago and they moved all right. But when the Reddit post went viral and hit Bleacher Report as well as the hobby sites, things got crazy. Well, yes, things did get crazy because they were then selling them for $24.99. There's been some suspicion out there that they, um, you know, bought the card, knew about it, tried to hype it up. I, you know, I don't see any evidence of that, but, you know, it has been discussed, so I do want to mention that. Um, And then eventually eBay started pulling listings. Uh, The earliest pulled listing I know of occurred in uh, on December 10th of 2018 which you know this card has been for sale since the beginning of ebay this card's from 1990 but the letter that they sent out it said you listed an item affiliated with a known murderer ebay does not allow items that were owned by or affiliated with many murderers and serial killers while we appreciate that you have chosen to utilize our site we must ask that you please not relist in this case um so Affiliated with means items that are directly associated with the person. So, um, and they they clarify that they say this can include, but it's not limited to objects like photographs, paintings, action figures, flags, sculptures, pins, books authored by the persons, items that they have owned, etc. The policy seems a tad bit inconsistent here. Um, if you look at some of the other stuff that's out there on eBay, you know, search Al Capone. Uh, those listings are not limited. Um, a lot of people think that this is weird and this is strange, and I've talked to people about this before. You know, our collection philosophies are a little bit different, but I own relic cards that were made by both Leaf and Panini for Jack Ruby. And if you're not familiar with Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby was the, the Dallas nightclub owner that shot Lee Harvey Oswald after the, the Kennedy assassination. People, you know, would say, well, why do you want a murderer's, you know, piece of his clothing or whatever. You know, I, I think that stuff's interesting. Um, there are also some things that I know, though, are banned for sure. And um, the big example that I can think of that I've seen in the hobby throughout the years are, are Charles Manson signed checks. And there are actually, you can't find them on eBay. They're hard to find now on the internet, but um, there's a lot of them out there. There's really not a shortage of Manson checks. And they were signed twice. And the story behind those, um, according to the source, he supposedly filled out these checks for his attorney who brought them into the prison and then took them out of his briefcase. So the the attorney was able to bring these blank checks in um, because an attorney's briefcase can't be checked unless it's going off in the metal detector because of attorney-client privileges. He was able to get those in. Um, well, Manson later bragged about having a checking account to other prisoners. And that got him in solitary confinement for six months, and the FBI shut down the bank account. But most of the checks, however, they're filled out, they're signed to Manson himself, and they were obviously never cashed. Those have become a pretty big collector's item. You know, Charles Manson's a, a pretty big part of the late 60s and, and really American history. Um, so anyway, there there are um, 
when you go on eBay now and you look at this Menin, you look for this Menendez Brothers card, you look for the Mark Jackson card, there, there's plenty of them on there now. They've kind of loosened up on that policy for this card. Um, and many of the titles even mention the brothers. If you know, if you can't find them there, you can go to check out my cards, which is comc.com. You can get them for under three dollars. They don't explicitly mention the Menendez brothers, but they do have the card listed as the Mark Jackson hoops and then quote unquote famous people in card background. Um, so anyway, when this all went down, you know, people rushed to rip 1990 hoops boxes and to dig through their diamond quarter boxes. We saw another classic case of market saturation. Values have since fallen, and like I said, they can typically be found for under $5 a piece, which is still way higher than that card ever should be. Um, but that that leads us to our last question, and, and one that I alluded to when I talked about the Jack Ruby stuff. Why would somebody even want to own this card? Okay, and, and I think there's two main reasons here. Number one, um, it was kind of a fad. People don't want to miss out on it. You know, it was fun to dig through your boxes and say, you know, oh, I found two or I found three and to show them off. And, you know, I, I dug through my boxes. I couldn't find any. I just texted my friend Mike because I knew he had a bunch of cards. I said, you know, Mike, you got to look through these cards. You got to find this card. He found three of them. He sent me one, which, you know, is very nice. I think he sold one in the moment for 15. So um, we both benefited from that message there. But, um, you know, people don't want to miss out. And number two, I think it's an interesting story. And I've talked about it before, but this card is something that I can show people. And that's one of the main reasons that I collect cards. It's my version of a little time capsule or a little history book. Because I can tell you all about, you know, the history of of television and crime and, and the hobby and so on. Or I can show you this card which encapsulates, a, you know, this little moment in, in those histories. Um, I once heard someone say that all of us collectors are cardboard curators, and I, I think that's appropriate. Um, so anyway, I saw a lot of those at the National. You know, I'm still thinking about the National. It's fresh on my mind. But um, seeing that card a lot and, and kind of seeing how its status was a little bit elevated than it probably was last year there, um, it made me think of all the documentaries that I've watched and I wanted to share that with you today. So that's the story of how a five cent card skyrocketed in value after several decades of obscurity. Um, before I leave you today, I want to give a quick shout out to a listener and a friend named Steve. Um, Steve sent me a, a couple of awesome Pacers uh, gold refractors this week. Um, I'm thankful for his conversation. I'm thankful for his friendship. He is my Pacers sounding board. Um, what's unique about our friendship and our collecting friendship is that even though we're both Pacers collectors, our tastes are very different. So tip, there's not a lot of overlap. So we can, you know, we can say, hey, you know, here's a card you want to see. Here's a card you might want to bid on. And um, we're not bidding against one another a lot. And even if we are, we typically message one another so we don't drive the prices of stuff up. Um, so I want to give a shout out to Steve. Thank you, Steve. Um you know, you guys at home, maybe you've got your version of Steve that you bounce things off of or that you collect with. Why don't you tag them on my Instagram this week and um, let both me and them know how much you appreciate them. And my my Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. Um, or maybe you remember digging for Mark Jackson cards when all of this went down. You know, we talked about that card today. 
let me know. You know, let's keep this dialogue going. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.